Hello and welcome. You're listening to Lore and Legend with your hosts, Rick Scott and Sebastian O'Dell. Every week, we bring you a legendary tale inspired by the rich traditions of world folklore and mythology. This series of Lore and Legend is called Strange Britannia, exploring dark and lesser-known tales of the British upper world and its hidden beings. In this episode, our hero Thomas is told the tale of a minstrel king who will need all of his musical talents if he wishes to preserve the life of his beloved queen and his own sanity. This is the tale of King Orfeo. We rode and rode, and hard we rode. We rode for many a night and day, until we crossed a desert bare that in our path was lay. Standing in the middle of this wide plain was a magnificent castle, built from gemstones and crystal. Thomas couldn't help but pause to marvel at its beauty, and the Queen paused too, seeming to wait for something. Then there was a terrible sound, like the very rock of the earth cracking apart, and the walls of the castle began to part aside. Thomas turned to the Queen in astonishment. What is it that has the might to move diamond with such ease? And the Queen replied softly, You have already heard the power that music can have over mortal men, Thomas. But as you will hear, there is music known by mortals that holds equal power in these lands. And then she unfolded this tale. Lady Herodis is walking through the orchard of her castle. She's been following something since she first stepped outside, but she can't see it anymore, and she can't remember what it was. She knows only that she has to find it. The trees around her are in their most beautiful state of blossom, but she can't pause to admire them. The creature has gone on ahead, and she must not lose it now. She follows it through the avenue of trees, every so often catching a glimpse of its antlers, and it's all she has to know that it's still there. And then she comes into a place she's never been before. A rustling sound begins to her left, and she turns to look. Early one morning, Sir Orfeo walked out into the orchard of his castle, and there he saw his wife, Lady Herodis, asleep, as she often was on warmer nights, beneath the boughs of an elder tree. He brought out his harp, and he began to play a tune for her. It was a tune he'd known since childhood, and though he couldn't say where he'd first learned it, it never failed to bring peace to the heart of the listener. This time, however, as the music brought her awake, Herodis looked up at him in confusion, and then horror. Something dreadful seemed to weigh on her mind. Please stop, my love, she began quietly. Every note brings me pain, knowing that I will never hear it again. Now it was Orpheo's turn to look troubled, and he looked at his wife questioningly. She caught his eye, and then turned away. Just know that I would never leave you unless I had to, she said bitterly, and then forced herself to look up at him. Tonight we part, never to see each other again. Orpheo looked horrified. You're leaving me? But why? And to where? I wish you joy whatever you do, but I wasn't ready for this. Do you think I would choose it? Herodas asked angrily. It's too late for that now. I dreamed just now that I was following a creature through the trees, 
I followed it until I came into a grove in which the knights and ladies of a noble court were assembled. Their clothes all glowed snow-white through the gloom, but the boldest light of all came from the king and the dazzling crown that sat upon his head. It shone like the noonday sun and twisted up to the sky like the antlers of a powerful stag. I knew that I was facing the elf king and his court, and that they had been expecting me. And then he said to me, Lady, you shall meet me tomorrow night, and then we will take the path to my kingdom, and it will be your new home. And when I heard this, I knew its truth beyond all mortal doubt. The elf king will find me, and I will leave this place tomorrow night. But Sir Orfeo was undaunted. After all, there was a reason that he had an army of bold and powerful knights at his command. He called for them now, a full thousand or more, and he had them surround Herodus in the orchard. Line after line of soldiers, all equipped for battle, all who would give their lives to protect the queen. Let the elf king come, if he was so sure of himself. And though she knew that nothing could save her, Herodis resigned herself to these preparations without complaint. She could not bring herself to dent Orpheo's confidence, so she went back to the elder tree bearing her fears alone. Behind the lines of armed guards, she did her best to fall asleep. The night passed, and the solid shield wall around that orchard never broke once. And yet when Orpheo stepped within the circle to find her, the Lady Herodis was gone all the same. We don't know how long Sir Orpheo wept. He hid himself in his chambers. He was gone all day. It was only the next morning that he assembled his knights, his barons, his priests, and he announced that he was leaving. Leaving everything, he said, in the hands of my steward to rule in my place. I have lost my wife, and I can no longer live among my fellow man. I will go into the depths of whatever wilds I can find, and live among the beasts until I die. The steward begged Orpheo not to go, insisting that Herodis would be found, and if not, th there would be another of equal beauty. But Orpheo roared over him, It is done! And then he too was gone. Orpheo left with only the clothes he was wearing, a small hunting knife, and his harp. Though all joy was now lost to him, music might still bring him a little solace. And he walked, over hill and moorland, by river and lake, until he came upon the open wilderness, where only the beasts dare to roam, the beasts and the other folk. Here in the forest, Plush beds of his palace were exchanged for a ground of twigs and moss. His banqueting hall traded for the stumps of trees and his feasts for anything he could forage or kill. All his life he'd been waited on, hand and foot, day and night. But in this wild world, there was not a single person to serve him. His meals were messy and irregular. Strong hunger became a constant presence. He lived each day just to find what he needed, be it meat, berries or firewood. But it wasn't for the life of a noble and its comforts that he longed. He wondered whether a single step of the many millions he'd walked had ever taken him an inch closer to Herodis. 
At night, when the moon shone bright in the sky, Orfeo would sit on the banks of the river and play upon the harp. He'd begin to pluck at the strings until he found that old familiar melody, and then his mind would be wrapped, following the pattern, varying it, returning, cycling. Sometimes it would soothe his heart, for he could sit playing for an hour or more without another thought crossing his mind. But other times, the music was only an expression of the darkness inside, and it filled the world around with sorrow. Each and every night, the beasts of the wood crept close to him when that music was heard, and even the birds of the air would settle down on the ground beside him. So it went on. The weeks became months, the months became years. Sir Orfeo, who had been of such high renown, had been neither heard of nor seen in the lands of men. His clothes so rich when he left, and worn to rags, and he now walked around barefoot, searching intently for his next meal. Sometimes, at the height of his hunger, he would be sure he could hear something in the trees up ahead. On investigating, he would see a pair of antlers, turning this way and that above the underbrush. He would spring out to surprise it, but the deer would already have begun to flee. Half crazed with hunger, he would pursue it until it found its way around a rock or behind a rise in the earth, and then he would pounce forward to strike it at last, and it would be gone. There were no signs of it, no tracks to follow, no sounds of hoofbeats hitting the forest floor, and Orfeo would fall to the ground in despair. He learned to withstand tricks like this, but one night there came a trick that he could not bear. He was once again playing his harp, this time on a rock in a wide spacious grove. His trance was broken when something struck the tree behind him, seemingly thrown with some force. He turned quickly and saw a woman fleeing into the trees. He hadn't seen her face, but he would know her anywhere. Swiftly, he dropped his harp and ran after her, heart racing. How had she found him? And why was she running from him? He couldn't pause to think about it. He had to run full pelt through the trees to keep her in view. And then a sound froze him in his tracks. A horn. A triumphant blaring of a hunting horn to bring a successful hunt to its end. By the sounds of it, the hunting party was only a few feet from him. And then the riders burst from the trees, charging across his path and cutting off his pursuit. They took no notice of him, and though they were the first people he'd seen in years, right now all they were was an obstacle, and he wanted desperately for them to pass. However, his attention was caught by the last of them. A figure, clad all in white, with a twisted crown sat upon his head. The Elf King did not return his gaze. His eyes were trained on the ground on the far side of the train. Drawing level with Orfeo, he leant down that way and reached out his arms. Even as his horse galloped on at ferocious pace, the King calmly pulled the figure up to his level and slung her on the horse behind him. She never looked back. Orfeo never got to look on her face. He watched powerless, as Herodis was taken from him again. He had seen nothing, heard nothing of his wife in so many years, only to have been robbed again when she was only two feet away. For the first time in his life, Orfeo wished for death. Yet in the middle of this darkness, his resolve did not give way. Herodis might be gone, but she had led him to the hunt at least, and she'd taken a risk to do it. He wouldn't waste that risk. Grief became determination. As before, the hunt had left no tracks. But they must be heading home now, to revel in their victory. And with this alone, he set off in the direction that they had ridden and walked.
He didn't stop walking when the night grew dark, or when the new day dawned, when the sun rose through the sky, or when it finally set once more. The only thing that brought him to a halt was when he saw a castle rise before him in the forest. It was maybe a mile away, and it shone out of the darkness like the midday sun. Its walls could not have been wood or stone, but must have been made of diamond, ruby or emerald. It had turrets that reached as high as he could see, but parts of that castle also seemed to slope down and sink beneath the earth. Orfeo had at last found the palace of the Elf King. However, as he walked the path up to the front of the castle, he saw that there was no gateway or door to allow him entry. Instead, the only break in the gemstone walls was a stone monolith that rose some forty feet out of the earth. He wished to beg the castle to allow him in, to plead the necessity of his task. But the walls would not hear him, much less this stone slab. Instead, he unslung his harp from his shoulder. For the fair folk are lovers of music, and if nothing else, his tunes might arouse their curiosity. He played the tune that he'd known since childhood, the one he'd practiced night after night for the last few months. The sound reverberated off the stone in front of him, which seemed to shake unnaturally in response. When he finally came to the last chord, the shaking had become violent, uncontrollable, and then, as though it could hold no longer, the stone cracked. A line ran its way up the monolith, which split entirely in two. Orfeo watched as the stone parted to allow him in, and he stood up, a little dazed, took his harp, and proceeded into the castle. He was met with fearful sights from all sides as he passed through that place. There were the bodies of men and women who he thought long dead, upright and yet torn apart by spear and sword. Those who were drowned floated in the air before him, never quite drawing breath, and those who had been burned still bore the singe marks and blackened skin. It had been a long time since Orfeo left home, and it was possible that the lines of the dead would include people he'd once known, people he thought still living. But he didn't stare at them to find out. He kept his head down, for he could not afford to let the castle's dark magics hold him in this place. He walked down a grand gallery until he came to the throne room. He was now at the heart of the castle, but it seemed that he'd wandered back into the forest, for the roof was a canopy of leaves, rising from the trunks that made up its walls. Out of the corner of his eye, Orfeo saw an elder tree, and beneath it, a lady sleeping. His heart raced, for he was sure that this was Herodis, and for the past few years he'd wanted nothing more than to look upon her face and yet he could not cast a single glance at her, because the king had noticed his arrival, and was now staring down at him angrily from his throne upon the central dais. Who dares enter my halls without invitation? Do you know the danger you are in here, mortal? My lord, I am your servant, Orfeo began, drawing his harp from his shoulder, and have come to bring beautiful music to your hall. The Elf King raised an eyebrow, and then scoffed. And you, man of the wood, believe that you can rival the finest minstrels of any land? Do you seriously believe that the music of your instrument belongs in these halls? My lord, I do, but I can only convince you if I show you. The Elf King laughed. His laughter turned heads in the throne room, and a figure stirred awake beneath the elder tree. Orpheo felt himself becoming distracted, but he focused everything he had to keep his eyes only on the Elf King, who was now speaking again. Well, I can't argue with that. All right, just for that. 
you may play a tune for us. If it is to my satisfaction, we shall agree that this music belongs here. If not, you are at my mercy, just as before. And what would you ask in return? Orphea felt the stabbings of guilt. He knew Herodas must be staring at him, but he was fastidiously ignoring her. He could not let on that he knew her. Well, he said, if my music impresses you to your satisfaction, then I hope to be satisfied in turn. The elf king looked at this bedraggled wild man, and a grin flicked across his face. Indeed, we shall agree on that. Play on, minstrel, and let's see if you will be satisfied. And so Orfeo played. tune began, the room stood enraptured. Even the king stared, the grin gone from his face, absolutely attentive to that beautiful melody. Orfeo could feel her eyes upon him, but still, he couldn't look. Instead, he focused purely on the strings that he plucked, breathing sorrow and solitude from the last few years into his music. He could not look at her, but he played for her alone. At the end, there was silence. All eyes now fell on the king. I can't deny it. Your music has impressed and satisfied me. So we agree that you will be rewarded. And we have agreed, too, that the music of your instrument belongs in my halls. It would be wrong, therefore, for you to try to take it away from where it belongs. And so you have a choice to make, mortal. Either you stay here to play that music all your days, or you give up your harp to me. Orfeo sighed, and then slowly he took the harp and handed it to the nearest of the king's guard. I uphold my end of the bargain, and now you must do the same. Of course, the elf king replied, and he grinned again. A feast, food, as much of it as our minstrel can eat, until he is truly satisfied. But Orfeo shook his head. I'm afraid that all the food in the world would not satisfy me. The king looked a little troubled, but brushed this aside. A bed, then. The softest and deepest sleep that you'll ever know. Again, Orfeo shook his head. I had the most wonderful food a man could hope for, and the most luxurious bed. But I left it behind willingly, for my dissatisfaction runs deeper. You see... The lady who lies beneath that elder tree is my wife, Herodis, and the only thing that will satisfy me is her safe return to live with me at home. The elf king was thunderstruck. He'd not realized who the wild man was. He knew that he'd been beaten, and so he bitterly agreed that Herodis would leave his palace with her lord. At last, Orfeo turned from the king to the lady who'd been watching from beneath the tree. He looked his wife in the eyes, and she stared back at him, tears streaming down their faces. They journeyed back to their former lands together, but having arrived outside the castle, Orfeo went in alone, Dressed in the clothes that he'd worn for so many years, now worn down to rags, and his hair and beard as wild and unkempt as ever. Dame and baron, earl and knight, saw this wild man come into town, looking for all the world like a walking tree. Thought it was a shame to see him amongst civilised people. This man of the forest, however, called to see the steward, claiming to have important news. 
The crowds laughed at the thought, but to their great surprise, the steward accepted and brought the beggar to his hall. He asked this visitor what news could be so important to trouble him. And the beggar produced a hunting knife. And the steward recognised it immediately as the dagger of his former lord. Beggar, he said anxiously, how did you come by this knife? I found it, the beggar replied, in a dark and dreary valley. There was a man torn limb from limb by wild animals. A broken harp lay beside him, and this knife sat by it. I saw it bore the sigil of this house, and so I brought it home, in case this death was important news to you. Alas, cried the steward, it is the most important news. Our long, desperate hope was in vain. We awaited the return of our Lord for so long, and yet you tell us now that he is lost forever. Fear not, said Orfeo, rising from his seat, but be glad, for you have proven your loyalty to your Lord. Bring a harp to me, and you'll see why this is a cause for celebration. Once more, Orfeo played his tune for everyone in sight. Stillness fell on the castle, and every soul felt lifted. By the last note, each and every one knew that their lord had returned. Orfeo was restored to his throne, and he and Herodus returned home, reunited at last. And seven years they went and passed, and I on earth was never seen. And I was told to never speak these things that I had seen. So, an obvious thing about this tale, to anybody who knows their Greek mythology, is that the story of King Orpheo is pretty much a retelling of the Greek myth of Orpheus. Yes. It's um so it's got the the the, the secret music that he can play. It's got his, his wife disappearing and being taken off to well, in this case Fairyland, but in, in the other the, the underworld and his quest to retrieve her. I, in the in the original in the Orpheus myth, it's got this really satisfying bit of human drama. You know the 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 long walk out of the underworld where he can't look back um, because uh, you know at that point she'll be sent back to the underworld and he can never see her again. Not only is it in and of itself quite exciting, it sort of reflects that kind of human thing of. When you're doing something to try to make progress, and you can't see the progress that it's actually accomplishing, it, it's very unsatisfying. You 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 almost sacrifice some of what's you know useful and healthy just to get a sense of what you're actually achieving. That inherent conflict of you know the thing that you have to do in order to accomplish what you're doing is not check that it's working. To me, that is the almost the core of that story. I wanted to find a way of giving some comparable drama to that scene where he wins his wife back. I introduced the saying, he can't look at her. And, you know, if he looks at her and shows by this look his, his incredible love for her, then his game will be given away. The, tra- the trick won't work. I don't think it has quite the same level of tension 
you know, just the guilt mm. of not being able to look at her and the, the draw of being able to see his long-lost wife. But I think it's got some element of the same thing. That's some of the tension. Uh, I suppose the story lacks the tragedy because mm. he's, he succeeds where, where Orpheus failed. I think the thing about looking back in Orpheus has always struck me as being... Well, the first thing that occurs is the concept of faith, especially when you're dealing with the divine. Yeah. But that's also particularly ironic in the case of Greek myth, because you can't trust the gods. They're incredibly fickle. (laughs) You know, if he looks back, then he will lose her. So he has to trust, even though it's not like the, well, the supposedly trustworthy Christian god. You know, you, um, you know, the, the gods are fickle, so. Yeah. But I suppose that's it, that, and if they've tricked him, he's not getting her back. So the only thing he can do is walk and hope that what that means is that he, he gets her back in the end. But it's just that burning curiosity, that need to know whether or not you're actually doing something, because, you know, it's something quite painful. So whether is, is this actually accomplishing anything? Mm. Um, and that need to know that is greater than his sense of what he has to do to, to succeed. Mm. So you said the, so in the, the original myth uh, is about going to the underworld, about going to Hades. Mm. Our journey takes... Uh, you know, the English King Orpheus to the to the elf land. Um, but you did um uh you did retain this uh, very powerful association with the underworld. Uh, I really noticed and it was very evocative well I really enjoyed your description of the shades and their their wounds and their burns and that kind of thing. Yes. Um so uh, how, was any of that in the original text or was that very much a decision on no, your part? that was in the original text as well. Um, so I would have I would have been much more um, wary about keeping that in if that had been just in Sir Orfeo and not in, in other kinds of, of, mytholo- of, of British mythology. But you do get that um, association with going to Elfland and seeing the dead. Um, or, or those you supposed dead. I think that even may be the way that it's that it's said in, in the text is that many he thought dead. Um, and it's not very clear whether or not they really are dead or whether they sort of been vanished away to Elfland. Hmm. But to me, it kind of um, seems to be related again to the kind of identification between the sort of Elfland, uh, the realms of the dead, Hades, hell... And then sort of the whole Christian mythos of limbo, because this idea of like the dead and the shades being there suggesting like they're not in heaven mm. um, or and, and possibly not in hell either. They're sort of trapped in this in-between world. And as you say, either by abduction or, you know, perhaps as results of some kind of sin or theological inconsistency or loophole. Mm similar or very related myths the wild hunt the the elf train um that you know there are similar catholic legends about sort of the marches of the dead as well uh, and unbaptized children and that it's interesting you bring that up is because um it's one of the uh, points of uh, debate on this story is what function uh the um the elf king plays in a theological sense because there are people who who are who essentially say that his his role is essentially satan you know and and it, it is almost just a direct transposition of the underworld and hades to a christian setting satan essentially comes and takes your bride away and you have to delve down into hell to get her back um but of course that, you know, as we um, see in Thomas the Rhymer, the, the English position of Elf, the position of Elfland within English myth is not quite so straightforward, even though there's been a lot of attempt to kind of co-opt the threatening and the sinister of, of fairy into a stand-in for hell. Because the Elf King is, I mean, he's not nice, but... He's he's got his own purposes, and in some ways, you could almost say that 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 gives a neat explanation as to why Orpheus succeeds where Orpheus fails, 
because Orpheus takes on the power of the powers of the underworld who essentially lined up entirely against him. Whereas Orpheo goes into a place where they've got their own ideas, they've got their own plans, and they're not necessarily always at odds with yours. Hmm. In a way, it reminds me a bit of, um, I don't know, it's very, it's much more common in, maybe there is sort of a Christian element to it in the fact that, um, you know, in Greek myth, fate is irrevocable ultimately and death is irrevocable ultimately. That's not the case in the Christian mythos and, you know, in the way that he, he tricks the elf king and... It's very, very common trope in folk tales to trick the devil. Actually, the devil mm. is often portrayed as being quite gullible, um, and you can trick him. Mm. And maybe that's, maybe in a sense, that's a, a Christian sort of claiming of the Orpheus myth. You know, you could yeah. argue that it's almost a sort of a subtle transformation of Orpheus to Orpheo and into almost a slightly Christ-like figure in the case that he, you know, he can overcome death. Mm. Yeah. And in, in, in being the representative of good, the divine will is on his side. Mm. He, he will triumph because he is set out um, to, to do what is right. Um, yeah, I definitely do see that repetitious elements as well. And kind of very similar to, child Roland in the sense that uh, you know you, you have the sort of the repeating themes so you know we had the uh, the Lord of the Dark Tower and now we've got the 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 king of this sort of it's, it's essentially it's a crystal palace isn't it mm. um, and in fact I didn't talk I, I sort of talked more of an urban chamber in the uh, in my telling of child Roland but some of the original texts do actually talk about this sort of glistening rock spa that, that the chamber's constructed of. Mm. Um, there's kind of like a similarity between the the magic words that Child Roland is uh, taught by one of the the fairy women and the the chords that let you into yeah. into the underworld. I did wonder whether or not um, Orpheo might have been successful if he'd uh tried to go three times round the, uh, the <laughs> castle with the Wittishins, yeah. <laughs> um, yes. I really liked what you did with the emotional journey of the characters. There's two versions of this story, and the first one that you sent me, one of the things that I said about it was that uh, you weren't really hitting the emotional relationship between them, and this one really did capture that you know i felt that had become like central to the story um, i thought one of the things that you said which was an important point but i didn't really know how to work with it was that the character of herodis wasn't a very strong character in my first version and i looked at it and i thought well this is a character whose main contribution to the plot is to get kidnapped <laughs> um, and then to remain kidnapped until she's rescued and i thought is it very very difficult to give a character like that, you know, a really sort of strong personal narrative. One thing that I kind of thought as, as I was listening to this tale is that I'm enjoy enjoying it, but especially after Child Roland last week as well, um, uh, you know, the, the recurring theme in these is uh, sort of our male protagonist going off to, ref to rescue uh, <laughs> yes. a kidnapped female. Um, we are going to be doing some stories with female protagonists um, later on in the series which will hopefully redress that balance a little bit. Uh, Lady Isabel and the Elf Knight and um, uh, our version of the Laidly Worm is kind of a bit different. So I think what I, what I tried to do was then kind of accept the constraint that she wasn't going to be able to do anything but also try and reflect how that plays out for her because she you know she buys into that inevitability very quickly which is in some ways kind of important it's seen that whatever the elf king says will come to pass and it makes sense in some ways of why they don't try and do more things to uh, to prevent her being kidnapped but at the same time you get her having to endure the fact that her lord is dead set on on preventing it 
sort of stereotypical masculine reaction of, I can prevent it with soldiers. <laughs> Lots of soldiers. Um, and she sort of has to bear the pain by herself until, you know, he has to come to it afterwards. I think the characterization came across better because she came across as more stoical. Mm. Whereas in the original, she was a bit, oh, oh, <laughs> yeah. I'm going to faint. <laughs> well, I think that was partly, you know, the I sort of retained some of the old language mm. um, in, my, in my first recording. And that does make it sound a little bit sort of, Oh, pretty sir, I do not feign to know. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, uh, which, which doesn't help. No, it's not a, um, it's not language registered that has aged well, has it? <laughs> <laughs> Just makes someone sound melodramatic, really. I felt like that kind of attention to the desire of the characters and their emotional life was quite strong. You, you sort of got a sense of Orfeo's music as being sort of the soul of who he is. Mm. And I really enjoyed when he's talking to the elf king and the elf king is promising to satisfy him, to mm. satisfy his desires and really well, food, a bed, you know, all of these, all of these things he's, he's treating him, uh, you know, very much like, a vagabond yeah that's that's the best thing that he can do for him so the whole reveal that he's actually there for his wife works very well in that sort of context i think so that that in some ways was kind of the the biggest thing of the story for me because when i first looked at sir orfeo i I like the way that he sort of outphase the fae he you know he plays more beautiful music than them and he um he essentially tricks the elf lord which is, you know, that that's the thing I really liked about it. But the thing I wasn't so keen on was the Elf King seems to sort of sit there, Orpheo plays him some beautiful music, and then he just promises him anything he wants. Uh, this is this is in the story, a version that I read. And then Orpheo, you know, says, I'd like my wife back. The Elf King goes, oh, oh, I don't want to give you that. And then eventually he goes, oh, no, I suppose I will. You know, if he's going to do that kind of outplaying the fairies at their own game, you want them to be playing the game. You want you want him to struggle and, and, and overcome. You've kind of got to give the Elf King a little bit of credit. Like, he's trying to do something. And so I, I decided he would be trying to play a trick. And he would be tricked in his turn. Which is actually, it was, it was a unique challenge for me because I have never written in any story a trick, you know, a, a sort of word game in which a character is promised one thing or, you know, says they'll do one thing and then suddenly, if, you know, with full knowledge, you realise that they've promised something entirely different. That was the thing I really liked about working with the story was trying to, you know, take that kind of nice sort of plot element and bring it out more obviously. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's good. So in the in the original versions of the tale, he doesn't really play that trick. No, so he, I mean, he still comes down as a in, into the Elf King's palace as a wild man, and there is the suggestion that the Elf King must just think he's a wild man, and then he just sort of asks for what he wants, and that was another thing I found slightly dissatisfying was that the Elf King just says, yes, have anything. It doesn't take anything, you know, he doesn't have to sacrifice or chance anything in order to get what he wants. The Elf King just sort of inadvertently gives it to him. That's not a satisfying representation of the the, the King of the Fairies. I, I wanted it to um, to be an unfortunate, unintended consequence that he's giving things to this um, this wild man. And it's, it, you're right, the, 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 the nice thing about it is that it shows the character's depth when the Elf King reads him in an entirely shallow manner. What he, what he wants shows why his character is a more interesting character. But Orpheus still has to give up his harp. Mm. And in the context of what I said before about you getting the scent, it's, uh, he's playing the music, you know, his, the music accompanies him through his journey. 
And then it also gains him entrance to the kingdom and then he wins this competition with it, but then he has to give it up. Mm. So he he wins, but he still has to uh, offer something up in return uh, for getting Herodas back. Yeah. I thought it was really well well played <laughs> <laughs> on the strings. <laughs> well plucked. Um, but I also liked... Um, and this obviously this is an element this obviously this is an element from the original tale is the fact that when he goes back and he wanders back into his kingdom as the beggar and he um you know all polite society sneers at him i thought that's a quite a nice um uh, personal journey element because when before he leaves he's the sort of big powerful lord that everybody loves and he tries to solve his problems by bringing forth all of his power and might. And when he goes back, he sort of seems largely unconcerned what people think of him and how he presents. He's he's just there to test his steward's loyalty. He's he, He's got a purpose in mind and he doesn't mind... Well, yeah, he doesn't mind how his status comes across. And that was quite a nice thing. Of, that's one of the things he sort of learns from years of having to look after himself in the forest. Hmm. I liked when he first hears that Herodas is going to leave him, like his first reaction. He's like, what, what, you're leaving me? <laughs> <laughs> I liked it as kind of like a very kind of like raw sort of like human reaction. I'm not sure that a medieval lord would have been quite so forgiving or accepting <laughs> of that statement, but... But for um, contem- as a contemporary listener, I could still kind of appreciate its emotional relevance. Yeah. <laughs> well, that, that is an interesting thing, because that was in the original telling that I read. I mean, he, he sort of goes, to whom? It's kind of like, if you did leave, I, I would still, you know, have every love for you. But, you know, you must not leave nonetheless. So it's a sort of halfway house there. Well, that's interesting, because that isn't something I would expect to be in the medieval text, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm not a particular expert, you know, despite having done uh, quite a lot of history, but, but that is interesting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm, I'm sort of not, yeah, I'm not hugely familiar, but I, I do assume that, you know, it wasn't just accepted that um, your your lady might just one day find some other fellow and flounce off with him well or any wife in in, in those times in, yeah, you know no. <laughs> the other thing that i um sort of particularly wanted to pick up on was um his time in the forest where he sees and chases the deer and uh when he sees herodis and chases her his, obviously, you, you, you get the notion that his, his solitude and sorrow is, is slightly interfering with his mind. He sees the deer, he's going to catch it, but then it's not there anymore. And you do then have to wonder, did he see Herodis? Despite the fact that, um, you know, of course, he then goes and finds the palace. But it's the same sort of thing as the um, Herodis's dream, where to an ordinary individual, the fact that you saw the Lord of Elfland in your dream doesn't, and and he said something of importance to you, doesn't mean that any of it is true. And and indeed, you know, you have Orfeo kind of scoffing at the notion. Setting a thousand knights around an orchard seems to be taking somebody fairly seriously. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, he doesn't believe that whatever's going to happen to her is inevitable or that somehow there's some powerful elfin magic that's, you know, that, that's, that's stronger than he is. But he certainly does seem to believe that the Elf King has been there. But the longer that he spends away from his castle and away from civilization, the more ready he is to believe these things which seem sort of on the boundaries of sense. And in some ways, he's rewarded for that. He sees these riders that just disappear, and he follows them, and that leads him to his goal. That's kind of how he manages to outplay the fairies at their own game, 
is he's sort of already kind of gone that way himself. And that was, I think, one of the things, that was why I was going to connect it to him when he comes back, is that he has slightly taken leave of ordinary human society. And the things that he thinks and sees are not necessarily the things that everybody else sees. Yeah, well, there's a sense in the legend he possesses this music that he can play, Mm. almost a kind of a secret or occult music. It grants access to the fairylands that it is in, in some sense, it is a, a magical tune or melody that he knows. And I've heard some storytellers uh, relating it to legends about particular notes and chords and keys mm. that, that that do play into sort of like the structure of the universe uh you know in in plato you have the sort of the harmony of the spheres and um uh, mu- and, uh music that kind of reverberates and is is magical in some sense he's known this tune since birth and he doesn't know where he's heard it but there's almost that sense that this kind of magical identity is already in there inside him and it's mm. been printed onto it and when you're talking about it kind of taking him over in the forest that's kind of like a nice idea isn't it that it's that it's kind of grown to to take take him over mm. yeah maybe actually that was that's the thing that i could have made more of might in a different telling having the music have it a sort of will of its own but the the idea of him playing the the, the chord that opens the the gate is, I think, is from the original myth, isn't it? From Orpheus. Uh, from the original myth? I'm not sure, actually. But I think it's because Orpheus is supposed to be, has have a, has a sort of divine, because he, he is the child of gods, or but he is a descendant of gods. Whereas there's a number of strange... Um, references at the beginning of the um the tale that that reflect things in orpheus so there's the talk of his parents sort of could trace their lineage back to pluto or juno's race the other thing and it's quite funny is um at the beginning of the manuscript it says there was a lord of thrace which is what orpheus was the king of thrace and then it says can't remember the exact wording but it's like which must be the old word for Winchester. <laughs> no, I assume... I think, was a, I think that was like a medieval joke. Yeah, that's what I'm <laughs> I can only assume that this must just be the medi- you know, the old word for Winchester, because clearly this story is from Winchester and nowhere else. <laughs> so, yeah, that, that does sort of just seem to be a joke. Uh, I like that. <laughs> One thing that you didn't touch on, but which I want to talk about because I'm a, uh, a big dream geek, mm. is um, so Herodotus is essentially kidnapped in a dream. Yes. Um, again, I'm not sure. I'm not sure you really talked about this in your your version of the story, but she kind of wastes away a bit. You know, the dreams are like feverish, and she's she's very ill as well. Um, and the idea seems to be that she's elf shot. Mm. Um, now it's elf, elf shot is the idea that the elves kind of made these arrows that they shot at people to, uh, and, and it caused people to sicken and would give them these like dreams uh, in which they'd uh, you know sort of the elves were sort of almost seemed to be stealing their, their life force or whatever mm. um, and uh, again in the kind of like scholarship it's seems to be the idea that you know people used to uncover old flint heads and that kind of thing um again related to these ideas that it's the remnants of of old tribes and civilizations that people kind of interpreted as in burials as being uh from 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 the elves or the elf civilization you know, I love the idea, the whole thing of, you know, well, there's some suggestion that Thomas's journey begins when he falls asleep underneath a tree and he wakes up and is he, in, is he inside an elf dream? Mm. Um, and uh, and Herodotus is, is kidnapped in the same way. Germans actually call these elf dreams uh, Al- Alptraum, the German, mm. German word for it. Mm. 
And I just, I really like that because it's a piece of law that's like quoted many times that people believe in elf shot and being elf shot. But there isn't, it doesn't turn up in many folk tales or stories. Mm. So I quite enjoyed the uh, the fact that Orfeo uh, possibly includes elf shot or being elf shot. The, um, well, I do, it, it is one of the things that the, the setup of the story is is quite keen to impress on you that Orfeo surrounds his wife with like an unfeasibly large number of knights um, and yet she disappears anyway. I suppose I didn't really go into it in my story but there is very definitely the suggestion that in in her dream the Elf King found her in, in dreams she was vulnerable to his power again. Um, particularly as she was lying beneath the elder tree, which has a lot of associations with fairies, as we've kind of, I think, touched on in, in another discussion. But yes, the I suppose I didn't want to spend too much time on that part of the story before the rest of the action began. Yeah. I didn't think it was essential to the story at all. Like, you didn't put it in, and I wasn't disappointed or anything, because I felt all of the, you know, the work that you had done was much more important. But like I said... <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I did my research on dreams, so yes. I'm, a, I'm a dream geek. <laughs> but, it, but it is a satisfying element because, again, it, it plays on the the it it plays on the the thing of the visions that Orfeo has in the forest. There's a there's an unreality which also is real in the in in the action that he's taking part in. It, the, the the strange visions that don't seem to bear on reality do lead him to find um find the palace. Oh, possibly. The hunt is another big part of this tale. I felt not not only the you know the the train of uh of horses you know mm. the the elf king's sort of wild hunt, but there's a, you know, there's. Uh, several of the ballads as well do emphasize this idea of um you know, i think in some versions orfeo himself is chasing a heart at the beginning of the ballad mm. um there's this the in the forests where it takes place the um you know there is a a heart which may represent the you know a heart a male deer that may represent the um the elf king uh, a, a spirit of the wood kind of like running around um, yes you kind of get the sense that she's been she's being drawn into the hunt in her dreams and then and then she's part of the hunt later on mm. um, again going back to the elf shot you know the the idea that she's you know she seems to have been wounded she, she's the object of of this hunt Next week, Thomas and the Queen come to the first of many obstacles that lie on their path into the Elflands, and we will hear a beautiful lunar fable from Lancashire. You've been listening to Lore and Legend, Episode 4, King Orfeo. Our story today was interpreted and performed by Sebastian O'Dell. Music in this episode was performed by Robert Bentall. Additional music and sound effects were sourced from freesound.org, and freemusicarchive.org. You can find a full list of audio credits on our website. For news about upcoming episodes and more info about our stories and their sources in world folklore, find us at www.lawandlegend.co.uk or follow us on Facebook and Twitter at of Law and Legend. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, uh, there are a number of ways that you can support us here at Law and Legend. If you don't want to listen to any ads at all, uh, please consider supporting the podcast through our creators page on Patreon. You can find that at www.patreon.com forward slash law and legend. Financial support enables us to keep on telling our stories and will empower us to develop more creative content for you, our listeners, in the future. If you can't afford to support us regularly but want to drop a few coins in the hat, you can do so using our PayPal link at 
paypal.me forward slash law and legend. And you can find all of those links on our website.